Well, good morning. <laughs> no doubt we all recognize that theme, right? The People's Court. Uh, does anybody remember when that first came out? It debuted, I believe, in 1983. And so millions of Americans for the first time were able to tune in and actually watch cases be litigated. Now, while the People's Court was not a real court, uh, Judge Wapner was a real judge, and those were real cases. And what the litigants or the participants on the show agreed to do, kind of offset, was to allow their cases to be heard in a context called, I believe it was binding arbitration. So the decisions that were made were in indeed binding, even though this was not an official judicial context. But aside from all that boring and nerdly research, what you and I got a chance to be deeply entertained by was, and educated by, was, wow, this is how it looks? So if you had never been like me as a kid, I had never been to court. I didn't even know what a plaintiff and a defendant was. I was like, what's that, mom? Oh, that's the person complaining. And what's the defendant? That's the person trying to stop them, you know? <laughs> so, uh, uh, but when we saw the people's court, one of the things that was really uh, entertaining was to watch how people presented their cases, right? Because they weren't in there with the fancy lawyers and everything. This wasn't the Perry Mason show or uh, what's the other guy with the white suit, Andy Griffin, uh, Matlock. It wasn't this, right? This was a real deal. And it was, and, and, but, but the cases were small. The cases were simple. It was small claims court. And what I found to be curious about it is that the way I felt who the winner would be or should be, oftentimes it was like, well, that person just looks shady. Or other times it was, they sound like they're lying. Or someone just came in and looked more prepared. Or they just was like, boom, 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 presenting all of this various paperwork, right? And so there were all these different schemes that, or in our mind where we decided who we thought should really win. What I found to be even more interesting was, as I step back and I look at the show in retrospect, I feel like there were so many cases, if not all of them, that if the people involved were prepared to just do relationship with each other, they wouldn't need Judge Wapner, right? These were not deep, complex cases that needed DNA or forensics or private eyes or anything like that. These were simple breaches of trust and relationship. They were trivial cases. And I believe that the backdrop that the Apostle Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is very similar. He says, you have these trivial cases amongst you, and you're actually going outside the church, and you're acquiring legal services to sue one another, which is a huge loss on your part. And so, just like us, when we saw the people's court, and we sit there and we say, man, this could have been solved relationally before it ever became a judicial issue. I believe that's the same message of scripture to us today, that, that when we as a church have grievances, we should be able to solve them with the grace that God has given us. I'll say that again. When we as a local church have grievances in our relationships, regardless of how greedy they are, we should have, there is some grace that God has given us that should allow us to resolve them. So we're gonna pray and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna unpeel several layers in this text and see exactly what those graces are. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning and we thank you and praise you for the great grace and mercy that you have first and foremost showed us. We thank you also, Lord God, for the grace that you have given to the body, and um, Lord God, for this call to be even responsible siblings. Uh, while we say that a lot at Gospel Hope, we know that this is not a unique signature of ours. It is something that we see readily in the pages of Scripture, that you would have us to treat one another in certain ways that are reflective of how you have treated us in Christ. And so we pray, O oh God, that as we unpeel the various layers and arguments of Paul in this passage, that we would see more than just a church 
church with an incredible mess on its hands, but we will also see a great message for us in how we handle our grievances using the grace that you have given us in the local church. Amen. So if you got your Bibles with you, we're only handling verses 1 through 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And if you're just dialing in or, or, or kind of coming in on the series, it's, uh, it's entitled Messy. And so we've been just looking at the kind of real-time messes that exist within the local church. And what is the redemptive way to handle some of those messy relationships? And so obviously here in chapter 6, we've got people in the local church who have sued one another or are suing each other, and they are taking uh, their cases or these suits outside the, the local body, and Paul actually has a problem with this, and we should also have a problem with it as well. One of the distinctives of the text that I see is if you were listening as Pastor Ryan read, and if you also have read this before, there were eight, a total of eight rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul asked. Um, you know, when one of you has a grievance with one another, do you dare go to the, uh, to the unrighteous rather than before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Uh, are you incompetent to judge uh, these most trivial cases? Do you not know that you will be judging the angels? Um, why should you lay them these cases before those who have no standing in the church? And the list just goes on and on. Just the Apostle Paul just has these eight different rhetorical questions. And if it's a rhetorical question, that typically means that the answers should be readily available, resident amongst you, and obvious. They're not far-reaching. In other words, you don't need a jurist doctorate to figure this out. You just need a heart that is properly oriented toward God, and I believe that that is what the Apostle Paul is bringing us to today. So I mentioned earlier that the, the whole text is about we as a church should learn to handle our grievances with the grace that, is, that God has given. Well, what exactly are those graces? And I believe that God gives them, excuse me, that God, through the Apostle Paul, gives them to us here. So let's look at verses one through four to discover this first among many graces. It says that when one of you has a, grievance, uh, has a grievance against the other, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have cases, such cases, why do you not lay them uh, before those, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? One of the first graces that Paul kind of implies that the church should have is the grace to simply see things differently. We should have the grace to see things differently. Now, there are a couple of different moments that Paul points to, and one of them is actually in the eschaton, or in eschatology. He goes all the way to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, he says, don't you know that we've been assigned to actually join with Christ in judging the world and the final things? He says that this is uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, John talking, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. That's us. And I saw the, the souls of those who had been beheaded uh, for the testimony of Christ and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast in its image and who had not received this mark on their foreheads and they uh, came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But that initial set of group, this, 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 this 
body of four and 20 elders, believers, just like you and I, who will be with Christ in judgment. Why does he point to that? I believe Paul points to that to simply say that we have a perspective offered to us by our relationship with Christ and the grand narrative of scripture to put things in the, in the perspective of the then versus the now. It's quite different when someone steps on my toe, dents my car, does damage to me in some personal way. The believer, to between two believers, we should have the ability to, as I called it in previous times, to zoom out and view this thing in a more ultimate context, right? The, the Bible goes on to tell us in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 4 through 6, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by the grace that you have been saved. And look at this, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. When we come to know Christ, there is a dynamic change of perspective and a change in values and ambition. These, these, this whole idea of being raised up with Christ, being seated with him, being able to look at life from a different perspective. This is a part of the grace of God. There are things that, that matter more to us than, than other things. There's, a, there's another verse. So we're, we're allowed to view things from the, then and now, from the then versus the now. We're allowed to look at things through the eternal uh, versus the temporal. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, the Bible tells us this. The natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, for he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But a spiritual person, the assumption is that's you, that's you and I, judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord that they might instruct him? No one. It's a rhetorical question. But we have the mind of Christ. Now, if you remember, Paul officially unpacked that statement of the mind of Christ, and it was this, to look more highly on the things of others than you would yourself, to not have a self seeking bone in your body, to even put yourself in position where you might be defrauded that another might be advantaged. That is the official mind of Christ. That's a complete rearrangement of the worldly value system. Now can you see why it would seem ridiculous for two believers who say that they drink from that well to go before someone who doesn't have that ambition, doesn't have that value system to arbitrate, if you will, or try to negotiate a disagreement between us. We're working from two completely different laws. Can I put it this way for you? Issue resolution in a secular context is often about, often about getting even, getting paid, or getting back at someone. The two parties after that go their separate ways. But in Christ, it is about getting it right and the two parties go out the same way. You remember at the end of the people's court, once Wapner uh, would make his decision, there would be a, a brother, uh, no, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but Mr. Llewellyn would be out there with the microphone and he would interview each person to see how they felt about it, right? And you could tell that there were bruised and damaged relationships walking out that door. These were people who had previously trusted each other in many cases. And, and as, as Mr. Llewellyn would ask them how they felt about it, obviously you could see them gritting their teeth because even though the judgment went for or against, like somebody had to lose. And so in the body of Christ, when it comes to trivial matters of disagreement between us, it is not about discovering who's right and who's wrong or who's going to get the upper hand or who's going to get the payback or the payoff. It's about how do we collectively get it right so our relationship stays within right context because we are not looking for the opportunity to get right or to have our way heard and then someone else feels disadvantaged and walks away from our local church or walks away from the body. 
Have any of us ever heard of church hurt? That's not a new phrase, is it? And in many cases, as you listen to people describe how they were hurt in a local church, it's an issue of a grievance, an ax to grind, a legitimate thing that really did happen, but sometimes misinterpreted or at least not fully understood. Sometimes when it comes to perspectives, I like to introduce the analogy of the open purse. Has anybody ever heard me use the analogy of the open purse? Imagine, if you will, there was an open purse uh, outside in the lobby of our church, and uh, uh, just a random open purse. And you walked up, and you saw someone at the corner of your eye go up to the open purse, ramble through it, and take some keys out, and then hustle to the parking lot. What would you think? You would think that something naughty, something untoward, something criminal is happening, until you discovered that the person who reached in the purse and tried it to the parking lot was the husband of the owner. Now it completely changes the gesture and changes the game. Just one more perspective, one more additional aspect of information, one more piece of truth that helped us interpret a clear observation that might bring all of us concern. But that additional piece of information changes the game. And for us as believers, it may not be as simple as, no, that's just your kid getting gum from your purse or your husband getting your keys. But in many times, uh, 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 trivial disagreements between, between believers is exactly that. We need one more piece of quote-unquote grace-based evidence to be introduced so we can see that thing correctly and preserve that relationship rightly. And that's what we've been called to, is to seek the full story and not move from a position of innocent until proven guilty, but move from a, with, a, with a prejudice of, Lord, you know the truth. Lead us in it and help us to, to discover it, even if it comes at the expense of my own level of comfort. That's the mind of Christ. And so the first element of grace is the grace to see things differently. Paul gives us more. He unpacks yet another here in uh, verses 5 through 8. It says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Do you have, I mean, to, to, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So the moment that you decide to take your brother to court outside the body of Christ over this issue, you've already tallied a loss in the column for something in the loss column for both of you why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded but you uh, you, you you yourselves or you 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 but you wrong and defrauded even your own brothers the second aspect of grace is this it's the grace to handle things locally so the first point is to the grace to see things differently but the lord is also vested within the body the grace to handle things locally the grace to handle things locally. How many of you have had this experience? You've been looking for something frantically only to find out that it is exactly where it always has been. <laughs> or you've been looking for it frantically and it was actually like in your hand. Now that one is awesome. I don't know how that ever happens. Where are my keys? Oh, where's the baby's comb? Oh, right? It happens all the time. Well, so much so, the by, the, I'm going to read a couple of passages for you, and you're going to make the discovery that oftentimes what we need in terms of wisdom to resolve grievances and to work out our relationships, that it's already in our hands. It's already resident within the body if we would just look for it more carefully. Listen to these passages in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. 
um, it says this. Well, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 uh, tells us that, that the Lord, through Christ, has given the body gifts necessary for the perfecting of the saints, for the edification of the body, and for the work of the ministry. But then it goes even further in Romans chapter 12 verses 3 through 21. Listen to this. It's quite a stretch. I'll break up the monotony with some commentary, but listen to this. It says, for by what? Grace given to me, I say that everyone among you not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think sober with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members ought not, to, but the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, to one who teaches in his teaching, to one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, to the one who acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, there is this grocery list of gifts that the grace of God has beautifully and wonderfully given to the body, and we are told, and with this whole interdependency and interconnectedness, that we ought to all be using those gifts with whatever measure of faith that the Lord has placed in the body. So in other words, the things that we need, the wisdom that Paul rhetorically asks, is there no one among you wise enough? He says, surely if God is doing his job, that his grace has provided somebody in that place who can help you walk through this. But did you notice that the great contingency is that we must recognize our shared interdependency? And it just can't be a spiritual reality, but it must be a practiced reality that I really do see you as my brother and my sister that I really do see you as sheep and I your shepherd, that I really do see you as the hand and, and I as a foot, that I really do see this beautiful, that this imagery of the body being interconnected is not just biblical poetry, but it is our actual practiced rhythm and lifestyle. I mean, I look out in the audience and, I mean, I have the beautiful benefit of knowing what some of you do, but there are many of you who may not even know what, what, what is this person's expertise, what is their skill, what is their gift? And that comes from, yes, we could, we could tee up a great church directory, there might be some practical applicability in that, but also just through some straight up relationships. Let me call Maggie and figure this out. Because I know that the information is coming from a perspective of someone who's not trying to sell me a used car, but it's going to educate me. I don't, you don't own a used car lot, do you? Okay. All right. Just kind of put that on you. <laughs> Get your business cards ready because they're, they're coming. But man, what a beautiful thing to know that the Lord has embedded within the body capabilities given to the body. But there's something else he gave, not just capabilities, but he also gave a call. Let's pick back up where we left off with our reading at verse 9. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Uh, hold fast what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show. Seek to show. Not react and wait to show. Seek to show hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Oh man, this interconnectedness is about to get gritty. It's not just gracious now. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who, uh, and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one with evil for evil. Give thought to what you do and, and, to, and leave it to the wrath of God, for it is uh, uh, written, uh, vengeance is mine and I will repay, the Lord says. To the contrary, if your enemy uh, is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him food to drink. And for, by so doing, you heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but, be over, but overcome evil with good. We have a call to not, we don't only have a, these shared capabilities, but we also have a great call in the way that we use these unique capabilities to always be looking to advantage, to create advantages for even those who don't behave in ways that seem to deserve it. Did you see that? This is how we kill grievances in the body by leveraging the grace that has been given to us. When you read this passage, uh, and when I read this passage, at first, at first glimpse, and he says, hey, why not rather yourselves to be defrauded? Why, not, why don't you just take the L personally? Man, that's counterintuitive to how I really feel when it comes time to sell a grievance. But here's what I want us to see. We are not called to be doormats and pushovers, but we are challenged to test the quality of what it means to be responsible siblings. Not just in fellowship and baby showers, but working through the gritty stuff of when people actually disagree. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said was the proof of discipleship? Not loving those who love you back, but to love those who don't love you. And so the proof of our responsible siblingness will, yes, manifest itself. And when we treat one another harmoniously, who we know well, and we fall in love with different types of people, but there'll also be times when those relationships are tested and can we still treat them like brothers and sisters? Man, I'll never forget the time that me and my sister had a fight. We had both, uh, just at the prior Christmas, gotten these little um, uh, Minnie and Mickey Mouse dolls from Jack's, um, Jack's Burger Shack. And uh, I got so angry with my sister that I took her, well, she threw mine and broke the nose. And so I was like, I'm going to get you back. So I took hers and twisted the head off and threw her two pieces. I was like, boom, how about them apples? And when my mom came in to kind of litigate or arbitrate, I mean, it wasn't like she, you know, all right, well, you got to pay that back or buy another one. I mean, it, it, it was it because when grievances happen within the context of a family, do you agree that regardless of how gritty they are, they always get handled differently than if that was somebody outside trying to handle the two of us as kids? I mean, if we had gotten to that little spat at school, who knows how it would been handled? Maybe I got, you know, drumstick to the knuckles or paddled, who knows? But at home, it was a completely different style. Why? Because there is this relationship that exists between the person looking into it, understanding why would I be so frustrated, just had a bad temper, or what did the older sister do to make him that mad? There's all these other layers of relationship that are very beautiful, serve as a beautiful overlay when it comes to working out grievances within the context of family, rather than, rather than in the sterility of just people who don't have a relationship with us or have the same values. So... If you take away anything from that, do not chip the nose of my Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Just kidding. I do believe we understand that grace calls us to see things differently and grace calls us to handle things locally. We have the grace of God to do so. But Paul's big argument seems somewhat detached 
But like a great attorney, he saves the best for last. His closing statements are these in verses 9 through 11. Listen to this carefully. It seems disconnected, but it's so not. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit uh, the kingdom of heaven. Now, for some of you, that list is not very offensive, so let's try it. Uh, People who um, steal your trailer hitch while you're shopping at Home Depot. Um, people who um, are bill collectors and telemarketers who call your house at the, uh, in the middle of the night, teenagers who drive rambunctiously through your neighborhood and throw out used Dorito bags and beer bottles on your lawn, that group will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? But then he turns, listen to this, listen to this closing argument about the grace of God. He's got this whole dirty list of people that will not get in. Comma, verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is Paul saying? That one of the greatest reasons that we should access grace to solve our grievances is because God had the biggest, most justified grievance against us of all time. We were the drunkards, revilers, the swindlers. We were the thieves and the idolaters. We were the practitioners of adultery and homosexuality. We were those who had actually positioned ourselves and shook our fists toward heaven at God. The Bible says that none of us sought to be in harmony with him. We knew who he was but refused to worship him as that, and therefore we were all without excuse. The Bible tells us that if anybody has a right to hold a grudge, that it's God. If it's anybody that has a right to seek litigation, it's God. But what was his gracious response to those with whom he had a huge beef? The Bible tells that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, God proactively moved toward us with compassion, and we were clearly the guilty party. I mean, there was no additional forensics that needed to be done. He was innocent. We were sinners. He was in the right. We were in the absolute wrong. We were running from him. He was running toward us. We were boxing against him, and he was trying to hug and hold us with his love. We were still sinners, but God proactively moved toward us with compassion. But the Bible goes further and says not only while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He demonstrated his love. He didn't just just proactively move with the compassion of love. He proactively came to the game with a solution. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He was already thinking about how can we make this right But why is he doing all of this work? He isn't the one who got it wrong. This is the grace of our God. This is why when believers find themselves at grievances, we ought to not only look at the grace that allows us to see things differently or recognize and utilize the grace that allows us to handle things locally, but we ought to reflect on the grace in ways that make us look at it personally. When have I been the guilty party and someone decided to make it right with me. But listen to this. The gospel not only illustrates where it is that God moved toward us proactively with compassion and also came in with a proactive solution, but then personally 
there was a substitution made. Like there was real guilt in the room and God decided he would take on the weight and the blame. The Bible tells us that Christ became, a, became sin for us. In other words, all of the wrong that could be possibly thought of rested totally on us. And in the gospel, God says, I will graciously take the blame, take the weight of creating solutions, and I will take on the business of actively pursuing you to get it worked out. And it is against that backdrop that the body of Christ is called to work out its messes redemptively, to recognize that the grace to work out any grievance between us is yet in our hands, yet in our hearts, yet in our mirrors, and it is in the mirror of God's word. I remember Michael Jackson's 1998 hit that hit the top of the charts, Man in the Mirror. How many of you remember that? Yeah, it also spiked in the charts again following his death. But Man in the Mirror was a classic hit of his as he talks about looking in the mirror and it is, if you see things around you that deep, deep change, the first place to make that change is with the, come on now. Man, that was too much build up for y'all to go, Man in the Mirror. <laughs> but we are to look at the man in the mirror. And while Michael Jackson's song was just about looking at the person that's in the mirror and making some adjustments there, but I believe that the Bible calls us to not only look at the person, but also to look in the mirror of God's word. When I see the great grace of God worked out for me, glaring back at me, how can I continue to hold grudges except it be for me giving preference to my flesh? And no one is trying to pretend as if real grievances don't exist. No one is trying to pretend like real people in the body of Christ don't do bad things toward one another. But we are called to operate with a completely different value system, and it is based in the grace of God toward us. Therefore, Paul can be fully justified back over in verse 7 when he says, to have lawsuits against one another is already a defeat to you. Why not rather suffer wrong? I mean, that sounded ridiculous until I read it through the gospel. That sounded like you're asking me to be a, uh, um, a, a doormat. I'll leave it there. You're asking me to just roll over and give up my rights. No, you're asking me to reflect the heart of God in Christ who became sin for us. Why? Because the end game was to glorify God in the work of redemption and winning back those who were lost. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, put it this way, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made himself to be sin, who knew no sin. Taking blame, who knew no blame. Taking guilt, who knew no guilt. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I get it. As Christians, sometimes our grace is interpreted as being conflict-averse. But God is not averse to conflict. He lunges into it and shows love. And this is the very call that we have placed on us. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come and we thank you and praise you for being the original court we were born criminal, guilty, sinners, with no way to declare our own innocence. But you seeing our inability to work out this grievance with you, O oh God, proactively worked it out.
in the gospel. And now, O oh God, as you allowed us to be beneficiaries of this great grace, you calls us to use it and practice it regularly on one another. Our prayer, my prayer, O oh God, for us as a local body is that as we have conflicts with one another, that we would not cower from them, that we would not uh, be shaken by them, we would not tuck and run, that we would not leave our church over them, but that we would step into the tension and see it as a unique opportunity to practice the very grace that you showed us, even if the solution comes at our expense. Lord God, teach us how to emulate you in the way we do relationship. Even so, oh God, allow us to live like this missionally so that as we have conflicts within our families where there's a mixed audience of, of, of believers and unbelievers and people see how we work things out, that there is this drawing effect that attract people to Christ and make them curious about the great love that exists among believers when they would see us working out our differences. Make us ambassadors of peace, ambassadors of reconciliation, both in our homes, on our jobs, in our schools. And oh yeah, let it start first and foremost at home right here in our church. We thank you, Lord God, that you took the first step and you bringing us along with the constant conforming power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.